Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week, we're asking, how safe is your information on the internet? One of the companies, we actually phoned them up and said, we've been doing this scan off the internet and it's just a simple Google search and we're literally looking at a copy of someone's passport and his um, bank statement from 2011 and it was on a web server, fully available off the internet. Plus, what your mobile phone could be telling eavesdroppers about you. Well, you've actually got something set up here and you've mapped a range of phones that are nearby, one of which you've even located down to a house in in Yorkshire. Yeah, somebody walked past about five minutes ago and, yeah, it maps to a location in Yorkshire. There's a street address. I won't say it on air. And a picture of their house. Yep, yep. And joining us to discuss how we can keep data safe and the workings of chip and pin are Cambridge University Computer Security Group specialists Ross Anderson and Stephen Murdoch. Hello, it is Sunday, September the 2nd. My name's Chris Smith, and also with us this week is Dave Hansel. Hello, Dave. Hello, and also on the way, a battery so flexible you could tie it in a knot and why soil is a fertile source of the genes that make bacteria resistant to antibiotics. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. According to the Office for National Statistics, in the UK, over 75% of households now have internet access. And, increasingly, our lives are shifting online. The financial sector say that over 20 million people bank online in the UK and a number of government services, including parts of the tax system, are now paperless and operate exclusively over the web. Also in the pipeline are systems for accessing medical records for anywhere in the country and the benefits system is due to be put onto the internet too. Now this means that sensitive personal data has to be transmitted over the web. So how can it actually be kept safe? Well, someone who's a pioneer in this field is Ross Anderson. He's from the Computing Security Group at the University of Cambridge. Um, Ross, the idea of data protection and encryption, that isn't actually new, though, is it? Well, not at all. Data protection um, goes back to the 1960s, and encryption goes back many, many centuries. Um, People have been enciphering their messages using all sorts of techniques for a long, long time. Um, But there has been a big change recently. In the old days, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, the limiting factor in your ability to encrypt data or information securely was the ability of the people at the endpoints to perform computations, to substitute letters for numbers, shuffle letters around and so on and so forth. Uh, And and this meant that it was difficult to make systems that were complex enough to resist mathematical analysis. But over the past 20 years or so, now that we've all got PCs and mobile phones that can run software, that problem has gone away. And instead, the problem now is how secure are the endpoints. You say it's gone away. Is that because a computer basically doesn't have an attention span like a person? It can just relentlessly plough on trying one thing after another after another until it gets the code broken. No. What's happened with the advance of technology is that this has favoured the code makers over the code breakers because if you increase the length of key just a little bit, you can increase the difficulty of breaking the cipher an awful lot. And over the past 20 years, we've had the development of a number of encryption algorithms that are now really pretty good. They're no longer the weak point in the chain. Could could you just explain, when you say an encryption algorithm, what actually does that mean? What are are people doing to data so that someone can't just come along and, and work out what it says? 
Well, I'm not going to go into the uh, describing the internals of modern encryption algorithms, uh, you know, because it's hard enough doing mathematics at a blackboard, let alone over the air. But roughly speaking, what happens in, in modern um, encryption algorithms such as AES is you've got a series of rounds where transpositions and substitutions follow one after another together with mixing of key material. Uh, and this means that unless you know or can guess the key, um, it's in practice not possible to recover plain text from ciphertext. So you have a key. That's when, when you're on your sort of router at home and you see PSK, pre-shared key, that's some combination of letters and numbers or, or symbols. And that's mixed in in some way with the, with the data so that the, the data is changed using information in that key so that unless you know what that key is, you can't reverse the process. Um, that's that's more or less right, but that isn't the interesting or relevant thing nowadays. That's essentially a solved problem. A much bigger problem is the fact that about 6% of PCs in Britain have malware in them. So even if you think you share a key with your bank, that's not actually so. You, With probability, 6% or so may actually be sharing that with some bad guys in Russia. In other words... Uh when I log on to my bank account and, and I'm generating some kind of random series of usually numbers, isn't it, with one of those little handheld devices, um, the bank knows what that number is, I know what that number is, so the data should be secure, but I am, without realising it, also giving that number via software on my computer to somebody else so they can eavesdrop on the conversation I'm having with the bank. That's fundamentally the problem. If your computer is infected with malware or if the bank's computer is infected with malware, um, then the bad guys may be able to intercept the order that you give to pay £20 to Sainsbury's and instead turn it into an order to pay £20,000 to Mafia Real Estate Incorporated in Bermuda. And as uh, bank payments uh, become ever faster and ever more voluminous, um, so the, the risk and the exposure from all this goes relentlessly up. Why can't people, clever people like you, uh, spot when that kind of interception has occurred? Because when the whole point about Schrodinger's cat and, and sort of quantum things was that a photon knows if it's been observed during its course from one place to another. Can we not do the sort of equivalent on the internet if, if a piece of data is probed or examined by someone other than the person it's intended for? You can tell. Well, the promise that was initially held out by quantum cryptography 20, 25 years ago um, hasn't in fact come to pass for various technical reasons. Um, but in any case, it wouldn't be a viable technology for large-scale use. Uh, the problem is that the majority of banks have decided that rather than giving special software or special devices to their customers, they're going to use the commodity products, the web browser that came with your PC when you bought it. And this means that the bad guys in Russia or Brazil or Nigeria or, any, or, or wherever just have to write an attack once and it can then run everywhere. So you can have this absolutely fantastic encryption and decryption system but it's only as good as the thing that keeps the key safe and if that's leaky because you have dodgy software on your computer you may as well have a much weaker system because it's effectively not watertight. Exactly so. The mathematics of cryptography are no longer the weak point. And where you have to start looking is in, is in the game theory, in the incentives that face the various banks, uh, the incentives that face the malware writers. Now, it's not particularly more difficult to write a virus for, say, Mac OS or Linux than it is for PCs, but because there are so many more PCs, there are many more people writing malware uh, for Windows operating systems. And so you're much more likely to be the victim of an attack involving malware if you're using a PC with Windows. Now, this isn't cryptography. This is game theory, which is another kind of mathematics altogether. A tweet has just come in at Naked Scientist. Shib says, what is the difference between malware and a computer virus? Are they effectively one and the same thing? There isn't really a distinction, is there? Well, viruses are a kind of malware. Um, so for current purposes, there isn't really a distinction. Uh, effectively, What's the source of these things? Uh, do, we, do we not just tackle the, the root cause or origin of this malware? Do we not just say, right, OK, we know this stuff exists, we'll just write better software that, that finds it and stops it installing itself on your computer? The, the best thing to do would be for the world's police forces to put serious effort into catching the people who write malware and putting them in jail. 
there are one or two police units, particularly the FBI, who put some effort into this. But I'm afraid that many police forces um, just consider it to be in the too hard category. After all, if these guys are in somewhere like St. Petersburg, you're talking mutual legal assistance, you're talking extradition, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds per case. And also, the average, you're talking the about av- hiring them and turning them into employees because they might be quite useful against other countries. There is a problem in that many governments find that they've got a conflicted mission. On the one hand, if the government put its priority to policing, it would try and drain the swamp, right? It would clean up the botnet, stop people writing malware and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, the people on the offensive side of things, GCHQ, the MOD and so on, rather like the idea that there's a big swamp out there but because it means that they can hide their nefarious activities in it. And um, so you end up with a tension between policing missions and intelligence missions, between offensive and defensive missions. And unfortunately, the the offensive often wins out because uh, GCHQ has got the ear of the prime minister uh, much more than the commissioner of the Met has. And the taxpayer and the bank customers are picking up the bill effectively. Um, That's Ross Anderson. He's from the University of Cambridge. He's with us for the rest of the programme. So if you have any questions that you would like to feed into him about cyber security and the future of internet security, send in your thoughts, comments and questions now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com or there's a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. All, I'm pleased to say, secure and safe methods of communication. Dave. In recent years, credit and debit card issuers have replaced signature strips with computer chips, and we now type in a PIN when we want to buy something. It's said to be more secure. But how does this technology actually work, and does it too have an Achilles heel? Stephen Murdoch is from the Computer Security Group at Cambridge University, and he investigates the safety of banking systems. Now, chip and PIN is something I use every day. I don't really think about it. How does it actually work, Stephen? So... Your credit or debit card has got a computer chip in it, and this is essentially a small computer. It's not very far away in terms of computation power from the PCs that were on people's desks in the 1980s, and it's got some special software loaded onto it, and more importantly, it's got some cryptographic keys loaded onto it by the bank which issued you the card. And these keys are used to allow the card to prove that it's present at a particular point in time and allow it to calculate a digital signature over that um, transaction and then the bank which issued the card can verify the digital signature. So essentially when you put your PIN number into the machine and the shop tells it you want to pay £20, all that kind of gets mixed up together and sent back to the bank? So with chip and PIN, the pin aspect of it and digital signature aspect of it are almost completely separate and in fact that's the the root of some of the security vulnerabilities. So in addition to all the digital signatures and keys it's also got a copy of your pin and when you type in your pin that gets sent to the card, the card compares it and then if it's happy it says yes and if it's unhappy it says no and hopefully it also tells the bank whether the pin was correct or not but that's actually one of the mistakes that was made in chip and pin. So how can you attack this if you're a nefarious person? Well, one way that we discovered back in 2010 that this could be attacked is because what I was saying, the digital signature is not mixed up with the PIN. So what you can do is put a little bit of electronics between the card and the terminal, and then when the PIN is sent to the card, this bit of electronics intercepts it and then just sends the answer yes back to the terminal. And the terminal will be happy. The card never received a pin, but it turns out the cards are happy not seeing a pin at all because at least it didn't fail. It just never saw something. And the banks, when they get that message back from the card, see a message from the card, legitimate card, digitally signed, that says that everything is fine, but in fact the pin that was typed in was wrong. So as long as you can kind of hide the electronics from the person in the shop, you could essentially use a stolen um, credit card without without anyone knowing? Yes, so when we initially mentioned this to the the banks, we we told them about it before we disclosed publicly to allow them to fix it. They didn't, but we at least gave them a chance. They said that this would be infeasible to do. And in fact, one of my colleagues, Omar Chowdhury, built some electronics that could be put up the the sleeve and he was able to use that without being noticed. And it turns out that they, they caught some criminals who were doing an even more sophisticated variant of this attack. They embedded the 
evil computer into a stolen card. So the card looked perfectly legitimate. It just had one good chip and one evil chip. When you're doing this work, Stephen, do you have a sort of chip and pin machine in your office and you're continuously running up a huge credit card bill in order to test these things out? Do people give you their, their gadgets to try? Is that how it works? So one thing we did was we bought a lot of chip and pin terminals off eBay. Um, when a shop goes bankrupt or they upgrade... They did put you their use a term- credit card to buy them? Um, yes, we did, because that's what you have to do. Don, that's what you have to do on eBay. Sorry, and I'm being the, flippant. <laughs> and the the other thing that we did was when we go to the, the local cafe in the university and then run through a five pin minimum transaction and experiment that way. So, are they very suspicious of you at the local? I, I think they recognise us, and they're not too worried when we plug evil electronics into their terminal <laughs> because they get paid in the end. We do all experiments on our own cards. So is this possible to solve this problem? I guess it just involves some way of checking whether they're combining the two together. Yes, it is possible to solve. We mentioned some ways that the banks could do this in our academic paper. And this is essentially doing more robust checks at the bank. It turns out that this was more difficult to do because there's lots of bugs in the system. And sometimes the banks were seeing transactions that were supposedly suspicious. It looked like this attack was happening, but actually it was just a bug at some point in the system. The data got corrupted. And the banks have a big challenge here because they've got so many transactions only a tiny, tiny proportion of them is going to be fraudulent. So if they start rejecting transactions because they think they're suspicious, they'll mainly be rejecting legitimate transactions, not fraudulent ones. Have you any idea, Stephen, of the scale of abuse of the system then? Do you, do you know whether people are implementing the strategy that you proved could work? And if they are, how much money this is costing us? It's very hard to tell because there aren't good statistics that are collected on this. We're pretty confident that the banks weren't looking for this attack before we told them about this attack. And that means that there's no way of knowing what was going on before that stage. We now know that some criminals are doing that because they got caught in France and there's a a trial going on at the moment. But in general, when fraud happens... If it's not one of the standard techniques that the banks know about, the customer loses the money and the banks don't keep totals of how much customers lose, only how much that they lose and shops lose. And conveniently, they've said that it's so secure that uh, if someone has a transaction, they must have shared the pin with someone. So it's no longer the bank's responsibility, it's your problem. So they've kind of conveniently passed the buck onto the customer too, haven't they? Yes, this is one of the very unfair things that's happened with chip and pin. Now the responsibility from fraud has been put on the customers, even when it's a flaw in the bank computer systems. Stim, thank you very much. We've got lots of questions coming in. The pair of you, both Ross Anderson, who's here with us, and Stephen Murdoch, uh, could have a go at this one. Kevin Hoover wonders on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, when quantum computing becomes available, what will that do to today's online security? Ross, what do you think about that? Um, Quantum computing appears to be somewhat stalled. Um, It showed great promise um, back in the 1990s where there was the prospect of algorithms that would allow people to factor large numbers quickly. And the Los Alamos report, which um, looked at the state of the art and prospects, said 10 years ago that within a decade, that is by now, we should have proper working quantum computers that we could use to explore architecture. But we're still stuck at the stage of messing around with machines with a maximum of seven qubits. And now scientists are beginning to wonder why it is that quantum computing doesn't work as it promised, and this with luck may lead to breakthroughs in physics. But I don't see it as changing the world of cryptography anytime soon. So by seven qubits, um, you mean that they could factor a number up to about 128? Well, in fact, the largest number they've been able to factor so far is 15. Probably not that useful. <laughs> so um, there's, there's something missing there, and what's missing is a source of interesting research in its own right. Quick one for you, Stephen, from Stuart Corson, who says on Twitter, at Naked Scientist, what is the future of passwords? Current password algorithms can be fairly easily cracked. What do you think? I think it would be great if there was some replacement for passwords because they have so many problems, but so far all of the solutions that have come out are being problematic in some way or another because you really need to have something that is linked to that person because they want to be able to use the same security credentials regardless of where they're going. So 
probably the best way of trying to manage passwords nowadays is to use different passwords for every website and then have some software maybe running on your phone, maybe running on your PC that tries to manage all of those and stop you having to remember them all. I know I'm struggling with that right now. Thank you very much. Stephen Murdoch and before him Ross Anderson, both from Cambridge University. Uh, They're experts on online security. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And still to come, uh, we'll find out about the companies that make a profit by hacking into your computer. But this time with your permission. We'll find out why shortly. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's science news stories. Dave, what have you got for us? This week, Korean scientists have built a battery so flexible you can actually tie a knot in it. Now, one of the big reasons that mobile phones and other personal gadgetry are still basically simple cuboids and not more interesting and exciting shapes is that they need a lot of energy to be stored and batteries are just simple cuboids. Um, Johan Kwon and colleagues from LG Chem in South Korea are working on something a bit more flexible. They're making lithium-ion batteries like those in your phone or laptop, um, but they look like a piece of cable, so a thin, about 2mm across piece of like computer cable. Chemically, the battery is a conventional lithium-ion battery, but rather than using flat metal plates for the anode and cathode, the cathode is arranged around the outside of the um, cable underneath the insulation, and the anode is a hollow, hollow copper spiral coated with niobium and tin, which runs down the middle. The hollow spiral increases the surface area, which increases the capacity of the anode, and it also makes the battery easier to fill with electrolytes. You can just kind of squirt it down the middle of the tube. And it also makes the whole thing much more flexible because a spring is an intrinsically quite a flexible shape. They've got a picture on their website of them actually tying this in knots, isn't it? It can withstand some really quite nasty treatment. They're actually tying it into a kind of simple overhand knot, pretty much as tight as you tie it with a piece of string, and it seems to survive. Um, and they've managed to build it so it will power LED displays and an MP3 player. They're still working on the capacity. At the moment, it's about 100 milliamp hours per metre. But um, if they manage this, the technology could mean that you could um, use your headphone cable to charge your battery on your phone, um, or you could make a flexible bracelet or belt, which is a useful battery, um, uh, or even weave batteries into a piece of clothing. Because most of the structure and shape of the gadgets that we use today are dictated pretty much by... By the battery, aren't they? I mean, my phone is the shape that it is because the majority of it, apart from the screen, but that could be manipulated, is the battery. Yeah, I think between the screen and the battery, that pretty much defines what a phone looks like, and that's why they're all so similar. Super invention. Well, let's look underground now, because scientists have found evidence that the genes that directly cause antibiotic resistance in things like superbugs that people pick up in hospitals sometimes, they come from the soil. They're not, in other words, made in hospital because people are using a lot of antibiotics. They actually come into human pathogenic organisms from their bacterial cousins living in the environment. There's a paper in Science this week. It's by Kevin Forsberg and his colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis in America. And what they did was to go to various locations around the US and just scoop up some soil. They went to towns, they went to cities, forests, farmland and so on, took the soil and they cultured the soil, in other words to grow up the bacteria that are in there, but in the presence of large doses of antibiotics, the idea being that if there are any bacteria that are naturally there and naturally resistant to the antibiotics, they will grow. Once they'd done that, they got the DNA out of those bacteria that were growing chopped it up into lots of bits and put the bits into laboratory E. coli, which is normally sensitive to all antibiotics. And then they grew the E. coli, and of course anything that grows in the presence of antibiotics must have got a bit of DNA from one of these soil-dwelling bacteria that is resistant. And they found hundreds of different resistant strains coming up, and what they then did was to sequence the DNA that the E. coli had now got in them and compare it with the DNA sequence from bugs that had been taken from people in hospitals with resistant infections. And they compared the genetic sequence. And in the words of Kevin Forsberg, it was, in a number of cases, a perfect match. In other words, this isn't something that just co-evolved in hospital and the same strategy happened to crop up in the environment. This piece of genetic material must have got into the bugs in hospital from organisms that live in the soil. And what they envisage is this sort of two-way street where genetic material gets passed into bugs that become human pathogens. 
or are human pathogens because of the pressure of antibiotic use. And they also then speculate that the same thing could happen in reverse. You could get rather nasty infections um, cropping up in the soil because human bugs exchange genes with the soil bugs and turn the soil bugs from being harmless microorganisms in the environment into things that can make humans quite unwell. So I could kind of see why um, in a farmland, especially in the States, where they're using lots of antibiotics, you might have antibiotic resistance in the soil. But why do you find it in woodland and in the general rest of the soil? A very good question. And the reason that this happens is that over millions of years, bacteria have co-evolved alongside each other. And there's been an arms race going on and various bacteria make chemicals that kill other microorganisms and so on. And this means that the bugs have evolved their own defences against those various chemicals. And most of the antimicrobial drugs that we use have their direct origins or their chemistry is informed by the chemicals made naturally. And even though we copy those molecules or change them very slightly, they're still attacking the same sorts of things that bugs in the environment would attack. And so as a result, uh, one thing begets the other. So does this mean that if we could find something which, find a way of killing bugs which wasn't in nature, it would be much harder to develop resistance to? It would do, but nature's got about 3.9 billion years head start, so it's going to be a tough one. Now this week the 44Con Information Security Conference will be taking place in London. Top international experts will be getting together to discuss the latest developments in information security. Among the presentations will be one from SensePost, a UK and South African-based company who have developed a system to track and profile people's movements using information given away in public by their mobile phones. Mira Senthalingam visited one of London's busiest railway stations where she met Glenn Wilkinson and Daniel Cuthbert to see their system in action. Smartphone usage in the UK has grown at such an alarming rate. And we looked at Ofcom, and in 2009, only 1.2 million smartphones were purchased. Now, if we fast forward August 2012, two-fifths of UK adults now have a smartphone. And 40% of those actually use it as their sole primary internet device. And, you know, if you look at traditional methods of connecting, it's either 3G or Wi-Fi. And so what we've done with this bit of research is look at vulnerabilities in the Wi-Fi protocol and see how we could use that to gather as much information as you can do about the person, their tracking, their usage habits, etc. We're located in Liverpool Street Station in the city of London at the moment, which sees 148 million people passing through here every year. I mean, just around us now, there are thousands of people readily armed with their smartphones. How much can you know about all of these people walking around here just busily emailing or potentially updating their Facebook? So one of the flaws that was found back in 2004 was that a mobile device will probe for the last X number of connected access points. So to put that in basic terms, when you go to your home and you connect to HomeNet and you save that as a connection, that's stored in the device. A lot of people move around with their phone, right? So if you can imagine, you're probably connected to, let's say, conservatively, eight access points. Every time you leave the house, your phone's going, where's this? Where's that? So what Glenn and I have done is built up a framework. We can now figure out where these people are, where they travel to, where they've been. And in places like Liverpool Street, where it's got a high concentration of people, you can gather a lot of information in a short period of time. Glenn, you, you've actually looked into the technology that helps find out all of this information through people's phones. I mean, what are the main things you're able to do? The project has two main components and I built software for two main areas. The one is tracking people and the other is profiling people. And as Daniel mentioned, your mobile phone or your laptop or any wireless device is constantly sending out these what we call probe requests looking for networks that are previously connected to. And in that message, it discloses a unique serial number for that device. It's called the, the, the MAC address. If someone walks past now with their Wi-Fi on and they send out a bunch of probe requests, I can see that MAC address. I can record it on some listening software I have. And then if they walk past me again later today, I would see that same unique serial number, that same unique MAC address. What that means is that in any given location and point in time, I know if there is someone around me, and later in time, at some other point in space and time, I can see them again. That's, that's perhaps nothing new, 
But what I've built that is new is a distributed framework for this. So what we can do is we can drop what we call drones all over a certain location. These are essentially, I mean, devices that this one here you've got is just a Nokia smartphone. So essentially it's any device that can run Linux, has a wireless card and has drivers that support the kind of things that we're doing. So in my hand here I've got a Nokia N900 with some special software and some special drivers, a small access point called an Alpha which is battery powered and solar powered. Um, we can also plug devices into a wall socket and they'll all collect the data and upload it to a central server and process it. So essentially you're gathering information about thousands of smartphones in many different locations say around London and just getting a good profile or tracking the movements of the people of London. Yes exactly and where that comes interesting is on the the larger scale. So if we were to drop one of these devices in every underground station for a day say you would then notice okay at 8.04 a.m. this Apple product walked past us. 40 minutes later it popped up at Oxford Station um, an hour later it popped up outside Oxford Circus Station. So you're really seeing somebody's daily movement. And that becomes quite interesting on um, the large scale when you have tens of thousands of people and you can see the daily movement patterns between various locations. Well, So this is very much I guess tracking movements but you also mentioned profiling so having seen that there are these phones around, are you able to tap into them and actually get information off them? If we walk around some location with a device that has um, Wi-Fi and GPS capabilities, each time we notice a wireless network, we can note its GPS coordinates and put that in a big database for later. We have these, say, 50 drones deployed in the field. They're all watching for these various people, and all that data gets uploaded to this one central web server. On that central server, we can start looking, okay, here's an Apple device. It's looking for these five networks. Let's see if we can map those to locations. So BT Home Hub, something, something, that maps to 6 Main Street, London. So very quickly, I can work out, hey, that person who just walked past me, they live at this address, they work at this address. We then interface that into Google APIs, get their street address and a street view photograph of their house. Well, you've actually got um, something set up here and you've already mapped a a range of phones that are nearby, one of which you've even located down to a house in, in Yorkshire. Yeah, somebody walked past about five minutes ago, and yeah, it maps to a location in Yorkshire. There's their street address. I won't say it on air. And a picture of their house. Yep, yep. And what about the actual information on their phone? So, I mean, they're using it to write emails, possibly do their banking. Can you actually tap into and get information there? Because your phone is constantly sending out these probe requests, what my drone can also do is it can pretend to be those networks. And then your iPhone or your BlackBerry or laptop, whatever, will connect to this device receive its internet via this device. Everyone's network traffic will go through this one spot and I can monitor everyone's communications on this one spot. Now, moving back to you, Daniel, then. So you've got these various ways of tracking people, profiling people. Is this the kind of thing that we, sh- we should be worried about at the moment? So are hackers potentially going out at these times to try and find out information about people? I wouldn't say no. I, I think it's a, an exciting area for the scammers and the criminals to try and look at exploiting. We keep everything on our devices these days. Your banking, your passwords, your social media stuff, your email accounts. So getting hold of these devices is, you know, there's such a wealth of information. And I think, you know, as, as we evolve and use these devices, people are going to look at ways of exploiting it. To summarise, really, what are the main things people need to remember at the moment? I'm thinking I just need to turn my Wi-Fi off when I'm not using it. I think we need to try start treating smartphones as we would do our laptops. You know, we generally put everything in, onto the smartphone. We trust it a lot, but we also lose a lot of them. Smartphones, by nature, are very chatty. There are people out there that are trying to abuse this. Be a bit more careful. Daniel Cuthbert and Glenn Wilkinson from SensePost, they were talking to Mira Senthalingam. And Daniel and Glenn will also be talking at the 44Con online security conference. It's 44Con.com, if you want to find out a bit more about it. It's taking place in London this week. And an extended version of that interview with a lot more detail in it will be available on our Naked Scientists Special Editions podcast feed, which you can find from our website or from iTunes from Tuesday, September the 4th. If summer ever arrives in Britain, then the nation will need to switch from worrying about potential floods to the effects of excess heat. Cities and towns experience elevated temperatures compared with rural areas because artificial surfaces like roads and buildings absorb solar radiation during the day, store this heat up and then slowly release it during the evening. It results in some parts of the city, so-called urban heat islands, becoming warmer than others. 
Catherine Muller from Birmingham University's Urban Climate Laboratory is studying the problems of urban heat in a project called High Temp. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to meet Catherine in a fenced-off piece of grass in the city containing various pieces of equipment, and she asked her how urban temperatures can compare with surrounding areas. During heatwave events, you can get them up to five, six, seven degrees warmer. For a city like London, you could be looking at maybe 10 degrees warmer. One of our partners is the Birmingham City Council, and they're particularly interested in where the high-risk areas are within Birmingham. For example, if you cast your mind back to the 2003 heatwave, we had, in the UK alone, about 2,000 excess deaths. Most of those were occurring within the city centre and that was always attributed to the increase in temperatures. So you are seeing a big impact on human health in these regions. So you've got to measure temperatures, certainly, for a start. So I'm assuming then that some of this equipment, quite a few of which I've not actually seen before, I couldn't quite tell what it is, although I'm suspecting that the spinning cups on some of them are measuring wind speed. That is correct. We've got some rain gauges. Right, let's just pop over. Rainfall. Is that next to it? It looks like a long temperature probes. We have a few on the grass which are measuring grass temperature and we've got a few on concrete that's just giving us artificial surface temperatures. Now this is just one weather station in one part of Birmingham. We're talking about Britain's second largest city Mm -hmm. here. How are you measuring across the city itself so that you understand the differences in temperature and other effects across the city? This site here is essentially measuring urban background conditions. It's not completely in the city centre, it's just slightly out in leafy edge baston. So we, we call this an urban background site. At Paradise Circus, within the city centre, the Met Office have just opened up a truly urban weather station site. So that's... Uh, bang in the middle of town so that will give us some urban readings but that's just opened up in the last uh, 12 months or so what's traditionally happened in terms of getting an idea of these urban heat islands is we've actually used the data from this site here and we've compared it to the met office uh, rural station site which is just outside of the birmingham conurbation so what we've done is actually just kind of taken those pairs of data sets and actually looked at how they differ to get an indication of how temperatures vary Obviously, that's not good enough to be able to assess how weather and air temperatures vary across a region as big as Birmingham. We've got so many different land uses in the area. We need to get a better indication of how they actually do vary. And how have you done that? This is where high temp comes in. We're setting up the Birmingham Urban Climate Laboratory, which will be a very dense network of weather equipment across Birmingham. We, In fact, we think... It should be the world's densest urban network once it's actually completed. So it is a big thing for the UK, let alone Birmingham. And what we'll do is we'll have 25 automatic weather stations, very similar to some of the equipment that you can see here. They will be located in primary electricity substations. The reason we've gone for electricity substations is that one of our partners is E.ON, specifically Western Power, part of E.ON, and they're actually interested in how urban heat and excess temperatures can actually have an impact on energy supplies so in the future with changing climates obviously temperatures will increase this could have an impact on energy supplies we've got 130 or so going out into schools across the region these are wi-fi battery powered so we all the data gets sent across the school system the school wi-fi but we are putting them in school sites so that They're secure, we can use their Wi-Fi to transmit the data and also to get the school kids involved because it's really nice to get kids at school actually involved in some real science. This is quite an an exciting stage you're at now. It's getting it underway. It's just kind of taking off at the moment. We're starting to install the equipment. That's a big job in itself. Once we've got that set up, though, it shouldn't take too much to actually look after them because all the data is coming in automatically to us every hour. All we need to do is process the data quality check it and then we can upload it onto a website that anyone can actually access if they want to have a look at what the temperatures and the the weather is actually doing across the region. And as you've already sort of highlighted this will have give you an insight into a whole range of procedures be it energy usage, temperature, buildings. Well we've mentioned about the health and the energy uh, impacts of urban heat obviously that has an impact on transport infrastructure so you get rails that can be buckling under excess heat um, even tarmac can be melting on the roads so we obviously need to know what areas of the city have a higher risk of these things occurring and then we can actually think about ways to mitigate and adapt to any kind of changes that are going to occur with climate change. 
Catherine Muller from the University of Birmingham on monitoring urban heat. And you can hear a longer version of that report from Sue Nelson in the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find at nakedscientists.com slash planet earth. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. Now, this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And on the way, how does internet data and a telephone conversation come down the same piece of wire at the same time? We'll find out shortly. But first, let's get back to our topic this week, which is cyber security. Most people want to keep hackers out. So the idea of paying them to attack your computer system sounds utterly mad. But this is a growing industry. And it's now worth over £200 million annually in the UK. The idea is to use these legitimate attacks to try to find and plug security breaches in systems. It goes by the name ethical hacking, although not everyone likes to call it that, including Stuart Coulson, who is from Sakama, a company that specialises in doing just this. I personally don't call it ethical hacking, I would call it ethical security testing. I think that's actually a more accurate title for it. The H word means many things to many different people. Um, the general media would try and put the word hacker as being some, some mastermind criminal who's, who's out to get your credit card details and uh, deface your website. Ethical security testing is, uh, is a much more easy thing to actually digest. We are invited in by organisations to come and test their um, systems, their infrastructure, their websites potentially, um, just to see if they have holes, vulnerabilities that someone can easily exploit. If someone who can easily use a tool off the internet they've downloaded and walk through a website and potentially pull out credit card details, usernames, passwords or anything which is sensitive off that website. So if I give you the URL of our website, nakedscientist.com, you could run a scan to see if you can penetrate that or look for loopholes, areas where we might be vulnerable, for example. No problem at all. It'd be quite uh, quite a simple thing for us to do. We've got the tools which are on the on the machines in front of us here. We, we use several tools, so we'll set several off at the same time. If you want, we'll we'll set one off now for you, if that's okay. Thank you. Got a free security check into the bargain. Where do you get people from who can do this, though? Because as a friend of mine once said, the only thing you can do with someone who writes computer viruses is to hire them and turn them into writers of antivirus software. Is it the same for doing what you do? You have to get people who are very good at breaking into systems and hire them because they'll know how to stop people getting in. And there's a very big debate at the moment which has been circulating around as to hire the hacker. There is quite a few people who say no, a lot of people say yes. I've got a, a guru here of, with with amazing skill set. Is it well worth me using them? Absolutely. However, you always, always have to think about that, the ethical word. The chaps that we use um, within Sakama have gone away and done a, a training course called, uh, from a company called EC Council, and they hold their CEH certificate, Certificate of Ethical Hacking. So they've actually gone and, and turned themselves from uh, what I would say was tinkerers. The chaps that we've sent off on, on the course are tinkerers. Uh, one of them who I've been working with closely at the moment, he's, he's our hard drive recovery specialist. So he's well used to being around uh, this environment. And obviously he's just turned his skill set into a new skill set of looking after uh, exploiting websites. If I were actually to engage you professionally, how would you approach that? How do you effectively come and size up an operation and work out where the vulnerabilities are? The first thing we have to do is work out what is you're you're actually trying to uh, to achieve. For example, if someone like NakedScientist.com, you've got a very simple website. There's a lot of material on there, and also users can be within that uh, on your forums, for example. So you may say, okay, we want to make sure that our forums specifically are safe. The rest of the website, okay, don't touch it. So we'll actually scope out the engagement. So we'll actually have a written scope from yourself as to say, touch these areas, don't touch those areas. And that's where we start from is the specifics of, of it. We'll also then talk to you about, you know, what attack methods do you want us to use? Do you want us to overload the database and potentially uh, get it to fall over? Or do you want us just to do almost like light touch on it? From that, we then go into a, a reconnaissance um, phase. And this is where we're, we're now in control. Uh, we do two things. We do a passive and we can do an active. And the passive is where we basically don't touch your website at all. So we go to the public domain, have a look at email accounts, what domain names link into this, whether there's nakedscientist.com, is there something else out there which l links into the nakedscientist.com, which is part of your address domain. 
These are all very simple Google search almost uh, of, uh, of your site. We'll also do a, a, an active scan as well, which is where we actually start touching the business. So we're actually, the phrase that our chaps use is rattling the doorknobs. So we are knocking on the doors virtually of your, of your environment. So we will actually be testing various things on the network. Once we've finished that phase, so we've worked out what doors are, are loose, if you like, we'll then go into a scanning phase where we're actually looking at what you've actually got as an infrastructure. What is the operating system? So your listeners will be aware of things like Windows and Linux. There are other, other operating systems out there, and we'll be testing at the moment to see if we can actually work out whether you've got a specific flavour of, of an operating system. You may have some vulnerability, because using an older version, for example... That obviously will then give us the next step, which is gaining access. This is us actually getting through the vulnerabilities and actually doing something with your servers, trying to actually get access. Very, very simple tools. A lot of this is free software as well, um, published by um, what we call the black hat hackers. So these are the, uh, the cyber criminals of the world. We use a lot of their tools because we're simulating what those, those guys are actually doing. But that doesn't doesn't that require you to sort of step across to the dark side? Don't you actually have to engage with the bad guys and effectively know them in order to know what they're doing so that you can then defend the good guys? We monitor the, if you like, the bad guys. We monitor them on a permanent basis. Uh, we have to know what they're doing. We have to be one step ahead of the game. And that's the hardest part of our industry is to know where they're going to go to next. Um, so when you have something as, as large as Anonymous, the, uh, the the hacktivist group, there's a couple of million people there to watch. There's no point in us going in with nice, clean, squeaky tools trying to uh, uh, maybe uh, test a naked scientist website when they're going to go in dirty and rough and, and use any way which but loose to actually get into your uh, into your servers. Have you come across any scary situations where you've gone in and actually said, look, we're going to have to stop this right now because we have found uh, you are so vulnerable that you're leakier than the Titanic. We did a, a paper, a research paper very recently. We're using uh, Google searches and a year ago we found millions of credit card details, full credit card details on the internet, as clear as you could see them. So we decided we'd run it again a year later just to see the state of the market. And uh, we were looking for personal details this time how many organizations are leaking personal details of uh, potential clients and we have found some absolutely horrendous stuff there uh, one of the companies we actually phoned them up and said we've been doing this scan off the internet and it's just a simple google search and we are literally looking at a copy of someone's passport and his um, bank statement from 2011 and it was on a web server fully available off the internet now, what have you found in your quick scrutiny of our server? How, are we are we leakier than the Titanic? Well, you'd be glad to know you're not as uh, not bad at all, actually. And one that you have got is something called SNMP. What SNMP basically is, it's it's an announcement of who you are on the internet. So that what this is actually telling me at the moment is I can tell you the version of your operating system. I can tell you what your network card is. I can even tell you the, uh, the make of your computers or any servers that this is sat on. Uh, I can tell you every process that's currently running off your server. I also forgot in here. One of the web pages you've got on there has actually got an email address. Um, which I can also use as a contact and potentially phone you up and say, hi, my name is, and I can get back into your business from that information. The trick is how you now use it, because obviously I know a lot of information about Naked Scientist's servers and, and its infrastructure. The trick is what you now do with that information. That's where it stumps your, uh, what I would say, the 90%, the, the people out there who are just playing with being a hacker. The more serious guys will know what to do with this information. That's where we would, if we're taking the scan onwards, we would then use that as a, to actually potentially target your servers and gain access. Stuart Corson from sakama.co.uk. And cybersecurity is also a big issue for governments and the military who rely on computers and satellites for reconnaissance, navigation and secure communications. And to find out how the Ministry of Defence keeps satellites safe, we've published a special edition podcast at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. We're talking about cyber security this week and our guests are Ross Anderson and Stephen Murdoch from the University of Cambridge. Let's start with this one. Mark in Bletchley's got in touch and said, do hackers leave a trail? Stephen? It's very hard not to leave a trail if you're breaking into a computer system. Some hackers will try to cover up what there is, but there'll generally be something left over. Well, even although there's a trail, the problem is doing anything about it. And um, the problem, the root problem in the UK is that back in 2005, 
Uh, the Home Office agreed that fraud should in future be reported not to the police but to the banks. Uh, this had the effect of reducing the fraud figures to near zero. It also had the effect of removing the police incentive to look into the problem. Indeed. Catherine in Hemel Hempstead says, how safe for regular landlines? So if you're on the telephone, uh, is that vulnerable, Steve? They are moderately safe and they're not really connected to the, the internet. But increasingly, landlines are moving over to voice over IP systems and then they are essentially internet computers and they have all the same vulnerabilities that internet computers have. Frank in Ipswich is wondering, and this sort of chimes with another question we had on Facebook, Jeremy Baker, they're asking, are Macs infected in the same way as PCs? In other words, are are all operating systems equally vulnerable, Ross? At the technical level, all operating systems are roughly as vulnerable as each other, Uh, but here the economics come into play in that if you're a bad guy, you'd far rather write your malware for Windows because there's uh, more than 10 times as many Windows machines as Macs. So as a result, most of the malware out there is for Windows and Windows users are more, more, more vulnerable in practice. Although that trend is changing, isn't it, as more people do use more Macs, for example? Well, um, as people move from laptops to smartphones, we're seeing a rapid uptick in the amount of malware for Android, for example, and we expect this to continue. This is interesting. I didn't realise this. On Twitter, um, at Naked Scientist, Catherine has said, it's ridiculous that US banks do not use the chip card. Is there some financial or technological reason that we don't know? I didn't realise that they didn't, Stim. So US banks currently don't use chip cards, but they are increasingly doing so. The main reason they are not, or up till recently, is not a technical reason, but economic. The US banks make more money when a customer signs for a transaction rather than um, enters in a PIN. And it got so ridiculous that um, a US bank, which also has a UK branch, was saying to their UK customers, use the PIN, it's safer, and telling their US customers, um, PIN not PIN, signature is safer. Oh, God, it all comes down to money. Gary Lester says on Facebook, I use a wireless mouse and keyboard. Is this secure, or can a neighbour see what I'm typing? Could you interrupt the signal that the mouse and the keyboard are sending to the receiver and then onward to the computer to do things like steal passwords? It really depends on the model of the keyboard. Bluetooth keyboards and mice are reasonably secure, not perfect. Um, Other ones often aren't, but you can still pick up some information. And in fact, research has shown that even if you can just see the timing of when someone presses a key, you can work out what they're pressing because it takes longer to move from one side of the keyboard to the next than just moving from one finger to the next. Because, Ross, one of the things I notice when logging into a bank I bank with today is that people are not asking me to type physical keys on the keyboard anymore, but showing me graphics on the screen and asking me to click the number one or two or three on the on the computer screen because presumably software can understand numbers and the codes for, for keys, but it doesn't understand a picture. Well, this is something that was tried out by Brazilian banks and the hackers soon found a way around it. Because if you've got malware on your PC, then when this was tried in Brazil, what they would simply do is capture a little image around where you clicked and that gave them enough money to reconstitute the password. So nice try, but it's been tried before and it will predictably fail. Dave, because you came up with a very clever way of doing this on our own websites with your own capture system, didn't you? So this was more to test whether someone's actually a human for logging onto our forum. So the idea is that people are... Quite a few good. non-humans on there as well, I think. <laughs> or people who are borderline. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, so the idea is that people are very good at identifying a cat or a train and also reasonably good at reading numbers. So uh, but computers are really bad at identifying um, objects. So the idea is that um, it's got a one on top of a train and a two on top of a cat and you're only supposed to write, it, write in the numbers which are on top of trains. Yeah, because it's saying write down the numbers which are on all of the pictures corresponding to a train or a picture of a cat or something and so people then type in one two three or two three or something yeah the only problem is not all humans are very good at reading instructions it would appear (laughs) (laughs) this is interesting in second life uh, madeline fitzgerald is listening and she says is it possible to look at all of the emails going in and out of a country this has been talked about quite a bit hasn't it ross Well, yes, there's a communications data bill currently before Parliament 
um, which would give the Home Secretary the power to order um, all communication service providers, so not just firms like BT and TalkTalk, but people like uh, Google and Facebook as well, um, to install surveillance equipment that would harvest data of interest to the government. And um, the equipment, once it's in, could be used to harvest, for example, all emails um, going into or out of the UK or going um, from one place in the UK to another. Would that be the entire email and all the data collected, connected there too? Or would it just be the footprint, I sent you a message at whatever time on whatever day? The Communications Data Bill gives the Secretary of State the power to install surveillance equipment to get the footprint, as you call it, the traffic data, who sent data to whom when. However, once the equipment is installed, um, other powers, such as the Intersection of Communications Act and the Regulation Investigatory Powers Act, would enable GCHQ to use this for surveillance for content. So what we're talking about is um, spending perhaps a couple of billion pounds and putting in enough black boxes um, into the country's communication service providers that the police and intelligence agencies could record everything. And this would be a huge change um, because at present there's only the capability to wiretap about 100,000 internet connections at any one time. And if you increase that to 20 million internet connections, then we go from a country where the government can watch anybody into a country where the government can watch everybody. All the time. And what's more to record it? And what they want to do is to keep the data for at least six months, perhaps some have said for five years, so that if you ever do a bad thing, they can go back and see all the people that you were talking to last year. Does this worry you, Stephen? Yes, I think it's quite concerning, and particularly because the computer systems that are being used for monitoring are no more secure than other computer systems, and it could be that criminals will break into these and monitor people even without permission of the police. And this happened in Greece. Some criminals, we don't know who they were, broke into a Greek telephone exchange and were wiretapping the Prime Minister and was doing so for a year before they discovered that the interception equipment had been tampered with. Stephen Murdoch and before him Ross Anderson, both from Cambridge University. And talking of things coming down wires, getting herself all wired up, here is Hannah Critchlow with our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week we open our ears to crunch a data question recently downloaded from the Naked Scientist inbox. Hi, I'm Dan from Malvern. Uh, I have uh, a telephone line coming into the house, two twisted wires, as everybody else does around here. How is it possible for a, a telephone conversation, a download to one or two computers, and someone else listening to a program and maybe even watching BBC News, how, how does that all happen at the same time? be interested to know the answer to that. So how can a single telephone line simultaneously download all of that data? When you talk into a phone, the vibrations in the air that make up the sound are converted into vibrations in the electrical current carried by the copper wire of the telephone line. In the same way that your voice is made up of different pitches, this electrical vibration can be a wide range of different frequencies. But, according to Mark Smith, network engineer and telecommunications consultant, a telephone call uses a narrow range of frequencies. Basically, there's a pair of wires from the local exchange all the way to your phone, but the telephone conversations are actually quite a low-frequency signal. They only got to 4 kilohertz. This leaves a lot of other frequencies that can transfer data above the range of human hearing. Using an electronic filter, you can transfer data at frequencies above the range that you can hear. A modem, or modulator-demodulator, converts digital data into these vibrations. As this is done at vibrations of at least 25,000 hertz, you can send voice and internet data along the same wire at the same time without interfering with your telephone conversation. The modem uses all the, the frequencies up to probably about 10 megahertz, and it divides the frequencies into bands, a bit like the um, spectrum of a rainbow, and based on how good your line is, allocates um, different frequencies to different parts of the band. The things like um, your YouTube and your um, file transfer and you're watching your uh, internet television, they're all data that needs to go as noughts and ones over the line. All that data is split into packets of data, and it's sent over over line using a, a very special modem that decides the maximum amount of data it can get over that and works out how to do that. 
with things like video, for example, if the line is good enough, you'll always get that. But if the line isn't good enough, then it will start to break up. Um, if you're transferring things like files, if the line's really good, it'll be really quick. And if the line's not very good, it'll be very slow. On the forum, Evan AU adds that these packets of data each have an address on the front and a return address, like letters in the postal service. The network equipment uses this address to send each packet to the right destination. This means that, even though the packets are sent mixed up and out of sequence, the data doesn't get scrambled. We next move on to reflect on a question just in. My name is Jay Shaw and I'm from Greenhive in Kent. My question for the Naked Scientist is whether you can make an infinitely powerful laser just using mirrors. Thank you. So, could simply adding more mirrors create a more powerful laser? Send us your thoughts. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Ross Anderson, Stephen Murdoch, Daniel Cuthbert, Glenn Wilkinson, Stuart Corson, and, of course, our production team, Hannah Critchlow, Tom Simpkins, Martha Henriquez, and Ben Vowsler. We're in Aberdeen next week for the BA Festival of Science. Do try and join us at six if you can. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Scientists.com.